Welcome uh, to the Art Robot Death uh, podcast, a discussion of art, technology, and society. I'm your host, uh, Timothy Reuter, and we're uh, very excited to welcome today Mark Pauline, uh, the founder of the uh, world-renowned Survival Research Laboratories, uh, really one of the pioneers of the industrial arts, uh, also sometimes referred to as robotic arts. Um, and I want to thank you for making the time for this conversation. No problem. Glad to be on the show. <clears throat> so just to start things off, you know, I'd love to hear about what were you doing actually before you got involved in SRL and, and created that? How did you get started as an artist and, and what were you interested in? Well, uh, when I was, you know, when I was in high school, I got, you know, I was involved in a lot of political things, you know, more left leaning political things at the time. And political action stuff, like printing up anti-war posters and the whole, you know, I became associated with a bunch of people who were pretty heavily into politics in high school and uh, involved in some, you know, pretty, uh, you know, spent some time, you know, doing protest stuff and mm -hmm. printing up uh, leaflets we would get from the college, new college in Sarasota, Florida, uh, distributing them to the high schools changing the dress codes in high school. Uh, I, I was involved in that process in my town, my high school's there. And also changing the uh, <clears throat> type of food so you could get organic food in uh, mm -hmm. the cafeteria, you know, which back in 1970 was pretty, pretty unusual. But uh, so, you know, I had, I had sort of a political tilt to, to my life and uh, and I was very interested in the arts. They had a great, you know, I was grew up in Sarasota, Florida. There was a, it was probably sort of the cultural center of Florida for whatever it's worth. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there was the Ringling Brothers Circus was there. And so, you know, John Ringling brought a bunch of art stuff. There was the, the pretty famous Oslo Theater there. And, you know, there was like New College, which is a very radical uh, kind of, uh, they used to call them draft evasion colleges back then but uh, liberal arts college. <clears throat> and so they had like films every week. So I was very interested in the arts from when I was young, but I was more, you know, uh, you know, I was, you know, at, when, uh, initially, you know, I realized that all the people I knew that were artists, I knew quite a few artists when I was in high school, right after I got it, I realized none of them had any money and they, <laughs> they didn't have any, you know, they were like working at crap jobs and calling themselves artists, but they never really got much time to work on their art. It didn't seem like to me. And so I resolved to, I noted that and I said, well, I'm going to take a couple of years before I go to college and I'm going to really learn a trade that pays a shit ton of money. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I spent two years after high school and I, you know, I was building uh, target, huge target robots for training F-111 pilots to do, uh, ground attack for Viet the Vietnam War. And, mm -hmm. you know, they were much bigger than the robots I make now. And I ended up being the foreman on that project because I was the only one that could read the blueprints and and that kind of thing. But they were 30 ton remote control robots. They were massive. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, they would run on rails and the, the planes would come and shoot at them. It was all very dramatic. And, uh, you know, I got a taste for, you know, I, I worked in the shipyards, uh, in San Francisco and also I worked in the oil fields in 
Santa Barbara. And, you know, by the time I went to college, I had gained a bunch of skill, but I had also, and I gained a love for working with really intense and powerful <clears throat> technologies, which at the time were more industrial technologies. And, uh, but I really hated the whole, the driving force behind it all, which was either in the case of the military stuff was to help people kill more people violently. And in the case of the commercial stuff was just to make somebody money, but, you know, to, to an, I mean, I was paid very well for what I did, but, you know, I just never really bought into the whole consumer merry-go-round, you know, and being really involved in it uh, on a, you know, on an, on a, at a job level for a couple of years, I just said, you know, this it's really cool, but I hate what it means. I hate what it does. <clears throat> then I went to college for four years and didn't have to work for four years. Got a degree in visual arts <clears throat> and, uh, you know, had done, you know, I thought it achieved some pretty interesting uh, things and finished some pretty extensive projects by the time I got out. And I was, uh, yeah, I was invited, you know, I was invited to be part of an art uh, show like I had my own art show in the gallery of one of my professors, which was also in Sarasota. So I was going to stick around Sarasota for a while after I graduated and do that. And and I decided what I wanted to do was uh, I wanted to go and modify billboards, take you know around town, do these very complicated because I could uh, draw photorealistically, mm. and so I was doing these. I would look at the billboards and I would was going to make them say what they really said the underlying message you know which to me was always very fascinating and i always i thought what a great idea to take and really finish them you know because they're really unfinished messages in a way and so i told that to the gallery owner and she looked at me and she goes well, well we can't do that that's against the law and and i said oh i'll just take photos of it. i'm not going to actually you know do anything with the billboards in your gallery. I'm just going to take photos and just, it'll be a photo exhibit. And she goes, Oh, we can't do that. That's, that would just be, I am sorry, Mark. We just can't do that. That's just you, what you're asking me for is just too much. And I'm like, okay. <clears throat> so the next week I moved out to San Francisco and I started doing those billboards out here, <laughs> but in San Francisco, the whole West coast, you know, the Bay area was undergoing a transformation from the, from the industrial sort of economy, uh, manufacturing and that kind of thing to a, uh, to an elect, to a high tech economy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, after, you know, I didn't really notice it when I, for the first year or so, because I had apartments and stuff, but then I actually moved into a warehouse, a big warehouse, like five or 6,000 square foot warehouse in, in, you know, the south of market area mm -hmm. and I had all this space and then I just you know I had I just start you know I had I had my jobs I, I worked in the shipyards and I was making I think even in 1977 I was making uh $27 an hour <clears throat> which is a lot of money which means I could work for a couple months and then just have a lot of spare time so I started looking at all these uh I liked old buildings and stuff and snooping around in them so I started looking at these massive factories. I mean, these there were factories all over the city that were like, some of them were four or five square blocks <clears throat> and the security was poor. Mm -hmm. And I figured out how to circumvent it. And I started going into these places and they were completely full of all this industrial equipment, the, the storehouses and everything. And I was like, wow, you could, 
you could all this stuff fits together. I was looked at it. I was like, all this stuff fits together. And I know how to do it because I know how to do welding and stuff. And then I just decided and, you know, I sat down, I said, what am I going to do here? So I sat down for a couple of weeks and I thought of like all the things I was interested in, like advertising and art, the arts and uh, performance. You know, there was a great uh, experimental theater uh uh, department at our college, you know, mm -hmm. run by a guy uh, who was Bertolt Brecht's boyfriend at Ham Hamlin College, and so he was just an amazing guy. But you know, they just did just crazy theatrical stuff. So I had that background. I did a lot of work in the theatrical arts, and so I just put it all together. And I just, uh, you know, I I I said I'm going to do steal all this material from these factories. I'm going to take them and I'm going to uh, Put it together into these machines that were as far from the intention of the original engineers who developed it as possible mm -hmm. and really find out if there's entertainment value in industrial equipment if it's if it's combined correctly and pulled in out of its usual context and put into another context and so uh, so then a guy who ran this free magazine in san francisco said hey I'll give you a whole page in my magazine. You can do whatever you want. Maybe you want to do an ad, for, you know, something, mm -hmm. some art. I said, okay, I'll do an ad for my company because I said, the companies are the ones that get away with everything. Cause I worked at corporations and I, I knew, I said, these are these, you know, corporations can kill people and broad daylight and get away with it. So those right. are the, I want to be a company, you know? And so I, I had, you know, I was back in the, punk rock days in San Francisco. And I was kind of, we were all into like weird soldier of fortune and that whole, you know, we were always interested in that weird fringe, the right wing element. I mean, not, not to be part of it. I mean, definitely not for me, but I always wanted to know the enemy. So even back then, even in high school, I was very, you know, I did a whole term paper, 30 page term paper on the far right in high school. That was my wow. first term paper. And I, you know, the conclusion was they're like, going to try, try to take over the way that people say communists take over you know the way that they said mccarthy said the communists were going to take over the domino theory and the the loud voice in the room is the one that wins and so so anyway so so but you know everyone a lot of people in the punk community like were into the imagery because it was extreme imagery you know so right and just as a note for public. listeners, we are recording this on the 15th of January, 2021, one week after far-right uh, extremists did try to take over the U.S. Capitol. So, uh, Mark, you were clearly very prescient decades ahead of your time. Just thought I'd so, insert that note. So, in, in looking at all these magazines, in Soldier of Fortune... You know, I got a, I got a couple, had a couple copies of Soldier Fortune I had bought, and there was an ad in the back of it for like add-ons to your AR-15 and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it looked like I said, "What a weird ad!" It looks like someone pasted it together from a bunch of other ads. And the company name was Survival Research Laboratories, and it was in the same script I used for my company. And I said, oh, "What a great, I, what a great thing!" And then the next month, when this guy had asked me to do it in Oct in October. I read the next issue of Soldier of Fortune. Robert K. Brown, who is the editor, said we we apologize for the the fact that we haven't screened our advertisers and we've had some fraud in relation to the advertisers we've let be be in the magazine. And so I was like, oh, these guys, these guys were 
part of the fraud. I said, they just had a P and I looked at it and I said, oh, there's just a PO box. This is completely fake. And I said, I'm taking that name. So I stole the name, <laughs> got a DBA here in the city of San Francisco and in the state of California, got the DBA for it and started, uh, you know, formed a company. So I got, you know, I had like checks and, and everything, right? Letterhead, yep. I made my own letterhead. And so that's, you know, and the idea being that I would use that as my beard, my cover to hide behind to create these shows, right? So I started building the machines and stuff and uh, did a couple shows and, you know, it attracted quite a bit of attention because there was nothing like it out here. But there was a big, San Francisco was sort of the, the center of the industrial arts, San Francisco and London, you know, with like Throb and Gristle in the UK and, and yeah. uh, you know, Cabaret Voltaire and those different groups. Uh, they were very, it was a very big uh, fraction of the punk scene was part of that. And so I got, you know, I got, I sort of, that was my segue into the whole being a part of the whole punk scene here was doing these shows and nobody was quite sure about it, but everybody thought they were pretty crazy. So it worked, you know, I, I started doing these, but then, then I started attracting all these other people, uh, scientists who wanted to help me. And I was like, wow, that's really weird. You know, like this one guy who was a doctoral student at Stanford said, hey, I can help you out on these machines. And so we built like a CO2 laser that we used in shows to burn mm -hmm. animals up. And, you know, the tech started to really advance. And, uh, you know, it's just been a basically a progression based on, I mean, I have the notes, my original notes from 1978 that show like a, a show scenario. And I said, wow, it just looks exactly like a show I would do yeah. today, you know. And Can you so, actually say a little bit more about the the tech advancing? So, what did you start being able to do that maybe wasn't possible before? And, and you know, even what are you able to do now that you know maybe you couldn't do ten years ago? Well, originally, you know, the it was a originally SRL machines were just about taking parts from industrial machines, putting them together, welding, basically cutting. Mm -hmm you know, fairly crude stuff. And then, and then I realized that there was a limit to how far things would just fit together without something more extensive being done to them. Yeah. You know, I was able to make, I was making, you know, there weren't really compute computers back then, but I was making relay logic controllers for the machines that used mm -hmm. cascades of relays and that kind of thing, basically what was available to me. And then I just said, you know, what's going to drive this and what's going to make it so I can do more and different stuff is tools. You know, I have to, so I, SRL, that was one of the early focal points of SRL was always working to bring more tools into the mix that myself and other people could use to build different machines. And at first that was like a lathe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I got a lathe in 1979. And then uh, a milling machine later, you know, uh, plasma cutters, all, you know, the, basically all these things, you know, pretty soon, you know, back in like 1980, probably by 1983, we had like a full, there was a full machine shop with like mm -hmm. lays, milling machines, uh, you know, like cutting torches, tracing, cutting torches, track, you know, all kinds of things. And it was just basically a lot of it was at these industrial places we would go into. And so we ended up with a lot of very high level uh, industrial tools and equipment. And so that, uh, you know, that allowed more complicated machines to be made. Uh, 
the people that we were attracting because we were doing that, we sort of bootstrapped off that to get more and more tech people involved who were building, you know, because back then you couldn't just, uh, you couldn't just buy off the shelf parts and make the electronics, mm-hmm. you know, like you can now back then you had to actually build it on from a component level up. You know, you basically had to build your own computer, industrial computers and so forth. And so, uh, you know, build our own radio controls. We're not really designed for safely running big things. And so mm-hmm. we had to, you know, we got people in there that were able to make these very reliable, robust remote control systems that uh, would work for the machines. Uh, and so that just continued on to the point where, you know, I, I got the first, uh, you know, we always had a problem finding enough people here who could make do, I mean, you know, we're, it's hard to find people who know high level manufacturing, right. Uh, that have time to do anything. Cause anyone who's has those kind of skills is pretty much, you know, 200% employable and they're all working full time. And, you know, we never were able to attract that many of those kind of people. We attracted people who were electronics, people, programming people, but not people who were ma- manufacturing engineers really. That was pretty much always me. You know, I was always ended up doing that stuff. And so I said, well, you know, I have to encapsulate my knowledge. And so that's when in 2000, we got the first CNC milling machine. Mm-hmm. I bought that a three axis CNC mill for $500 that needed a little bit of work, but not too much. I repaired it and got it working. And so that's just continued on. And, you know, I, I devote a certain percentage of the time here to getting more and more complicated machines so that we can continue to expand the kind of things that we do here. And so to the, to the point where now I have like, uh, you know, I have an almost complete all DMG Mori uh, CNC machine shop. Uh, DMG Mori is the, basically the biggest tool CNC manufacturer in the world. They're German and Japanese. Mm -hmm. They make the very high end machines. So I have like a DM, the DMG five axis CNC mill. I have a DMG much bigger four axis CNC mill and another Decomajo, uh, uh, sort of an open mill, you know, for much larger parts, four foot wide parts, and then a big CNC lathe. Basically you could make, you know, huge uh, CNC surface grinder. That's 20 by 40 inches, uh, you know, basically, it's what we have now is what you would have a like a uh, a very well equipped Fortune 500 company R and D shop. Like if you walked into yep. Google's R and D shop, they would have all exactly the same machines we have, but they would be a little newer, but basically the same capabilities as a company like Google would have at their R and D shop in uh, at Google X. I don't know if right. you've ever been to any of their. Their uh, R&D I used shop. to work there, so uh, yeah. I, I have. Well, you know what they have there? They have that whole room full of DMGs, and you know they have DMU 50Vs yeah. there also, and so uh, so you know that's that's where it's at now. You know, I finally really learned how to. I did a project over the last year and a half or so, two years, where I really got to do a lot of five-axis programming and milling and. I really learned how to really do it, which was, that's another, another thing is, uh, you know, SRL is a very, it's always been a very educational enterprise. Uh, you can learn a lot from the people that come 
yeah. here and do things. And, and could you actually talk a little bit more about the community building element of it? I mean, we, we got uh, connected through Christian who used to be affiliated with SRL. So, you know, were the, how did you sort of attract these people? Were they um, employees or collaborators? What is sort of the, well, the thing that you have built? Well, I've always been the director of SRL mm -hmm. and I've had various levels of collaborators. There was a, uh, you know, back starting in like 82, there was Matt Heckard and Eric Werner a little mm -hmm. bit later, Eric Werner came in more like 83, but you know, they were, they came in and started building their own machines, you know, and uh, you know, I, I was the one, the artistic director, I would always decide the themes of the shows and, mm -hmm. and the choreography, you know, I would always do all that stuff and build, you know, most of the machines, I would build more of the machines because I just was more, maybe a little more fanatical about it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but it, you know, I would arrange the acquisition of equipment, I would plan those uh, operations. I was an operations planner. I, I, I mean, I did read an interview with you where you, you talked pretty openly about just like stealing a bunch of stuff. Well, um, you would be, I mean, it's being, you know, hard to describe like, you probably wouldn't, the things that we've done or the things that have been done in that way are pretty indescribable, hard to believe, but they did happen. Nobody got in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the police in San Francisco are really prioritized things and that's not one of the things they don't prioritize people going into old buildings and right. hauling stuff away they don't particularly care about that and was this stuff that like nobody was using but they were trying to well, figure out what to do with it or, yeah yeah most of it was factories that were shut down you know yeah. like uh some there was there was a huge brewery that we used to go into that was about four square blocks that it was shut down because uh we found out by looking through the files in the office, but it was shut down because uh, because uh, they made a bad batch of beer that ended up killing a few people in five oh or six. And so uh, it was contaminated somehow uh, with chemicals accidentally. And so I think cleaning chemicals. And so uh, they agreed to shut the brewery down as part of the settlement. Hmm. And, uh, but, but there's a, in federal law, uh, we found the paperwork for that. And there was also a big article in the Chronicle about it because, you know, there were uh, people would come into the office every day there, but they didn't do anything, you know, they, but all the power was on. It was like, you could turn a switch and start the entire facility up again. But, uh, but the, in federal law, if you furlough a brewery, you get the tax write-off of the expected income from the brewery. So wow. this billionaire guy who lived in Marin owned the brewery and so he was just sitting on it and collecting this massive tax windfall every year from it. And so that's why they had people coming in there every day. So there were alarms and everything, but I mean, all that stuff is easily circumvented. And then of course, after 11 or 12 years of that, they just knocked the whole thing down and scrapped everything. Right. You yeah. know, so it wasn't like, you know, it's not like anyone was using it. I mean, you know, we went in, we did some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, there was the, the CEOs, car was in the garage there was a brand new like ford i you know like a i forget what you know beautiful like big land yacht car had three thousand miles on it so the motor from that is now in the v1 uh runs the eight stage supercharger for the v1 buzz bomb engine so we actually took this brand new motor out and 
you know, took it and put it into the V1. That That's awesome. But so, so going, yeah. Yeah, anyway, so so that was, you know, there were just, uh, I mean, there were dozens of these places that were just basically abandoned. Uh, where the Costco is in San Francisco was another brewery that that was abandoned, the Lucky Brewery. Yeah. Uh, but going back a little to sort of the, the community building element of it, you know, are these just sort of people who saw what you were doing and asked if they could be part of it or... How did you attract these people? How did you keep them around for whatever period? And, you know, what is it like making art in this collaborative way versus, you know, sometimes people just work as individual artists? Well, uh, you know, it was very uh, organic, really, very, very grassroots. I mean, I was just doing it, you know, and I had a couple of friends who were helping me, you know, just maybe out of pity or something like that. I don't know. But, <laughs> but then it started to become like this whole, a thing, you know, it started to become a thing in the early 80s. And, uh, people really sort of desperately, people really wanted to be part of it somehow, right? And so all these people would just come to the shop, you know, which was a known address, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, and uh, all these people would come to the shop and say, hey, I know how to do this. I, I'm like a video guy. I mean, that was another in a real central part of the SRL thing was video documentation, like all the way back from the seventies, we were really making a lot of room for every show, the shows to be really extensively documented. First, mm -hmm. it was Joe Reese at Target Video, and then he handed the SRL program, because he was more in the punk bands, he handed the SRL program off to uh, John Reese. And, uh, you know, so we started getting these professional documentaries produced and that attracted a lot of attention. Also, you know, we we're doing public showings and, you know, basically in San Francisco, the police, the fire department, everyone just kind of gave up. They all were like, OK, whatever you want to do this insane shit. We don't care. Fucking go ahead. You know, we don't we don't we're not going to stop you. I mean, really, you know, nobody could say no. I mean, I would literally go to the school board and say, hey, I want to do one of those really insane shows on your school property. And they were like, uh, yeah, that was kind of crazy last time. Uh, you're going to have to get insurance. But I was able to somehow, you know, I got insurance. And once you get it once or twice, you can just keep getting it. You know, you have a record, yeah. you just keep getting it. And pretty soon you're safer than a, a softball game that someone's trying to insure. And so... If, if you could get if you could get a permit, you know, which the police would just go, oh, yeah, SRL guys, you know, we would hire start hiring the cops every time. And right. so the fire department would be all up in arms at a show and the cops would say, you know, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> you know, so they would literally almost get into fist fights during our shows. And after a while, the fire department says, you know, I don't really want to get into it with the cops. We just right. They would just come and watch sometimes and we we were doing things that were shutting down the 101 freeway wow know, uh, burning like 50 pianos up against the pillars of 101 and nobody even said a word to us literally not one word back in 1989 i mean and so the city of san francisco just let us you know we we they loved us you know the, is the that mayor, still possible would facilitate shows the mayors would force the fire department and the police department to let us do shows. You know, Willie Brown would like just scream at them, 
You're gonna let him do this fucking show. Getting <laughs> a fucking. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah, he would just get. He would totally get down on these people who were trying to harass us at shows. You know. So, can you still do stuff like that, or has the environment changed? No, we can still. We still. We did a. We rented a. We rented a street in San Francisco in 2016. I mean, we didn't have that much. You know, it was self-funded and stuff. But you know, we rented a whole street in the city for. Uh, 1200 bucks with a cop in the city of San Francisco. There's all these people in city government that love us. And for a while we couldn't do stuff in the city because the fire department was all crazy. Yeah. But then a couple people who liked us got elevated in their positions. And so they, I said, I want to do this show. And I called the fire department contact who I knew who this, who likes us, you know, who was always sort of yeah. would support us at these meetings where we would get turned down you know, for, for many years. And she said, okay, she goes, I might, might help you. If you promise me three things, promise me, you're not going to kill anybody. Mm -hmm. Promise me. You're not going to set anything on fire. That's not in your show area. Mm -hmm. And promise me that when you send your, your, your proposal in that there's lots and lots of ways for people to escape. If they panic at your show, because mm -hmm. I know that happens. I said, okay. She goes, if you do all that stuff and it looks good, I might help you. And so she did. And we were able to get a full on permit from to do basically whatever we wanted to. Again, you know, we were limited by the time we had to prepare and stuff like that. And there was some funding limitations. We did, you know, and the space was only, you know, it was a big 120 foot circle in an industrial area. But, you know, we had we, we they said you have to keep it a thousand people around a thousand people. We don't want five thousand people there. Mm -hmm. So we didn't do any promotion at all. So it's just word of mouth and we had a thousand people there and uh, you know, we can do it. It's, now it's more a question of money. Uh, you know, now I don't have like, I'm not paying like $1,500 for 6,000 square feet, which is what I was paying before I moved out of San Francisco. Yeah. Now I have to pay real rent. I've got 10,000 square feet of space here. Uh, you know, I have to pay for electricity I have to pay for all these things that I didn't have to pay for before. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just much more expensive. Uh, I'm able to afford that because I, you know, the other thing is that after all these, after all these uh, resources for free stuff died out, mm -hmm. uh, there started to become all these uh, businesses that were dealing with the assets of the tech companies. And so I can, I was connected with them because the director of the first one was the, one of the main people at the Exploratorium here in San Francisco, the science. I love the Exploratorium. I, I used to live near there. And so he goes back in 91, he goes, wow. I just walked in. I said, Hey, you looks like you guys are some crazy stuff in here. And he goes, SRL. He goes, what? Yeah, you can have as much, whatever you want. <laughs> and so I started just getting all this, you know, we got even more resources from, from this. And I still, I bought some stuff there yesterday from the same company. That's I bought great. a truckload of equipment. So, so now it's to the point where that's the other thing is the other thing is funding really to be an artist doing this kind of technical stuff. You have to be a artist making it. You have to be making an executive salary on part-time. And so, so how, how do you do that? I, ended up right? being able I mean, to do this is like what you're doing is is so expensive. I mean, robotics, even hobby robotics, is just like an endless stream of like 
parts that you you pay for. So how do you make it work? And if you don't mind, like what is the economics of SRL in in general? Sort of how do you make enough money to be able to do what you're doing and 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 to live? I mean, I noticed you, you now have a kid, so you probably can't be living in a shack off ramen noodles no. like you could many years ago. Well, I you know back in the day, back in 2003 or 2002. When you know anybody with a pulse, and probably people that didn't even have a pulse could buy a house and get a loan, we bought a house in Brisbane because a bunch of the SRL people were moving to Brisbane, which is mm-hmm. five miles from San Francisco, and uh, so I bought a house there. You know, it was cheap. I actually, you know, because of all this tech stuff I was buying at these asset management companies, mm-hmm. I think I was able to pay the make the fifty thousand dollar down payment in three weeks, working for three weeks. So you were kind of brokeraging it. Were you reselling no, no, some no. stuff? No, no, no. I just, to, I, no, I, I'm, I'm like, uh, I, I'm the guy who knows what all this. I know what all, if, you know, in in that world, in the world of mm-hmm. remarketing assets, anybody who really knows what any every, if you know what every kind of technology is and can identify it instantly, mm-hmm. you are the head king, because nobody, you know, it's the beige box syndrome. Nobody knows what anything is once it leaves the laboratory. Yep. Nobody. So the asset management people have don't have a clue. They used to try to sell it, but then they used to, you know, sometimes they would have a division that tried to sell on eBay. But, you know, for a real business to sell on eBay, you have to be have a lot of fortitude. Uh, the, all the scams and all the weird yeah. rules they have, it's, you know, basically anybody can return anything at any time. You have to really, you have to be a, have a really well-managed operation to do it. So, but I started doing, I didn't have any money, but I started doing, I used to just do jobs for basically for the labs around the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I would, I was an instrument maker, essentially. I would make instruments for laboratories, experiments and stuff. Uh, But then, you know, I started getting more and more in debt in the late nineties Mm-hmm. And this guy, just one of the people at SRL just goes, hey, he goes, have you ever heard of this thing called eBay? And that was in 98. And I said, no. And he goes, I used to try it out. You got all this, because I had all, all this crap in the shop, you know, I'd collected from everything. And he goes, you should try it. You can just sell this stuff on it. I was like, no way. So literally in two months, I had paid off my debt, uh, my line of credit, paid it off. And like, I had real money for the first time. And so that's pretty much been the way it's been since then. I mean, you know, I have, uh, you know, yesterday I went out and got like a ton of equipment, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's probably worth in the end. Uh, it'll probably take me a year or two to sell, but just that one batch is probably worth about $45,000. Nice. And so I paid $2,000 for it. So in the end, you know, I, so I have basically, so I, you know, it's a bunch of very advanced technology. A lot of it, uh, you know, uh, ellipsometers, and you know what that is, probably right. I do not. If so, I'm being honest. Anyway, yeah. so they're they're things for semiconductor manufacturing. Some of it's from semiconductor manufacturing, but it's all the, you know, it's a company that was doing semiconductor manufacturing test equipment, mm-hmm. for basically calibrating the machines, and so. Uh, they're getting rid of a bunch of stuff, but it's a couple of years old, but it's still, you know, if you know what it is, I mean, I know what it is. So mm-hmm. I can, they, otherwise it just would have been scrapped yeah. for metal or circuit board value. But with, uh, 
would it ever be possible for SRL as a sort of business entity to be self-supporting or is that not the right way to think about things? Well, I mean, the shows sometimes pay for themselves, you know, I mean, you know, for if, if we're, I mean, in the, you know, we did our show in New York, we did a big show in New York city, which is more of a gallery show, but mm-hmm. that was three, a couple of years ago, but it was a big, the last really big production. And uh, they basically fronted us, uh, you know, a bunch of money to do the show. And then we were going to pay that back out of sales. Of course, no one bought anything. I did get a commission from a, one of the tech CEOs, big, a big, very big company in the Bay Area, who mm-hmm. is paying me to make, I'm building a machine right now that hunts humans and tries to kill you. And decides, you know, is, it runs some pretty cool AI software that looks and discriminates and decides who's the victim based on just some really simple things like your eyes blinking and your huh. You're in get basically on get an engagement. Uh, I would call them engagement. Uh, 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 pr- you know, I don't know what the word is for it, but uh, anyway, so it looks at a few things that your face is doing and then decides if you're the victim or not, and then it picks you out of a group of people standing in front of it. We're using the Intel Real Sense sensors, yep, that, and then we got a guy, uh, a guy who was one of the people on the original team that did developed all the 3D stuff for Windows back in the 90s. Yeah. So he's kind of famous for that. But so he wrote all this crazy code for it. Uh, so anyway, so, you know, like, but but to get back to your question about funding is uh, basically the way it can work now is I, I work part time. I work like probably 20, 25 hours a week and I make enough money to pay for everything. And uh, right now we're got, we have funding from another uh, very, very a real tech titan, one of the real big ones in the Bay Area mm-hmm. who's funding a show uh, for this year, in the fall this year. So he has put up money, uh, basically it pays half of all my expenses every month. That's great. For another, for all the way through till August. And so that's a that's a new development. I mean, we never really we've had like uh, some support from uh, very well off people in the tech mm-hmm. industry. They come to visit here. All sorts of people come to visit here all the time. Uh, but uh, but finally, someone said, you know, I want to see one of those big crazy shows that I used to see in the 2000s and the 90s. Mm-hmm. What does it take? And I said, oh, it just takes money, you know, and time. I mean. We've been really stymied by the whole COVID thing. I mean, we had a couple really near misses where we almost had a super spreader SRL event. So now we're just being super, super careful. And like just one person at a time besides me down here. And yeah, it's very, it's hard to do, but I'm, I I should be able to get my vaccine and uh, my shots in a couple of weeks here. Looks like. That's great. And then, and then we're, but, but so, so yeah. So, I mean, if, if we had donors like that, yeah, it could, you know, and believe me, I've tried to make SRL financially viable, but people, you know, what we sell, which is controlled chaos and uh, with a, with an ironic twist, that's kind of meant to be a joke, but it's also really serious at the same time. Right. You know, that's not really, you know, people, 
get a little bit confused by that message, especially these yeah. days, you know, it's like, like, when, like, for instance, when we go to Europe, you know, like, we've gone to Europe a few times. And the challenge is like, you got all these kind of weirdos and stuff who want to help you. And the challenge is they're always really suspicious that you're some kind of weird right wing radicals. Huh. Although we've never, ever said a word to that interest and none of us are we're all left-wing radicals you know we're i'm more of a i mean you know there's the you know there's the side of srl that i shouldn't really you know the the extracurricular activities i don't want to get into you know but i've always been more you know that side sure and uh you know sympathetic to that side you know it's not not you know not to the not you know more indirect confrontation with the far right i guess and the religious yeah. right, I'm more into that kind of thing, you know, not uh, not like some of the other stuff that I don't like, you know, go out and fight the police or anything like that. Right. You know, I'm not into that kind of thing. But uh, but anyway, so. Uh, so the challenge is always to convince people in Europe that we aren't just because we do these really extreme things and we're organized and we have a you know, you have to have a very tight organization. You can't there's no slack permitted you know nobody can get high you mm -hmm. can't drink at srl these are things that made because we didn't do any of those things when we go to places like europe everyone thought we were fascists because of that because we run the organizations more like a military organization where there's some things that are very you know to, to be able to get crazy like we get crazy you've got to be very strict in some ways Right. I mean, you're you're dealing with fire and giant things that can kill people. People could really, really get hurt. I mean, it's yeah. all fun and games until someone gets hurt and no one's ever been really hurt at a show yet. You know, not to not to where not to the point where they don't think it was funny. Right. Although you I, know, I heard you hurt yourself working with solid rocket propellant. Although I that's did, a very yeah. different thing to do it to yourself rather than to inflict it on other I hurt people. myself pretty bad. Yeah, I, I was sorry to see that. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Um, and your your hands are your. Uh, yeah, but that but in some ways that happened very early on in my career, and in some ways that was a you know, and it and I think it's good not just for me, but it's a reminder to everybody here that safety is a, an important part of what we do. Um, and just for those who can't see, since this is a podcast, not a visual medium, uh, Mark, I, I hope you don't mind my saying you're. Uh, right hand is severely disfigured. Um, That's right. Yeah, I have a couple of toes on my right hand, and uh, one finger was left. The fuck you finger was left. But uh, <laughs> basically, I almost got killed. I was uh, my friend at Stanford got me a manual from Morton Thiokol on how to make uh, test batches of uh, rocket fuel of this, the same type that's uh, uses for you know space shuttle boosters or. You know, anti-tank rockets or anything yeah. these were like a uh, thousand pound thrust rockets three inches in diameter 12 inches long uh spun fiberglass casings ceramic nozzles you know very high, i mean current tech for the time uh technology so in this manual it described how to mix the fuel how to test make a test batch mm -hmm. uh you know, how to do, you know, so I did the whole, I thought the chemicals you need, the special chemicals. And when I ordered them, they were, the guy was like, huh, what are you going to use this for? I said, oh, we're making liquid, uh, solid fuel rocket motors for props and stuff. And he goes, 
you'll need to send me a, a letterhead for that. And because, you know, it's like the epoxy rubber binder for for solid rocket motors. Anyway, so uh, you're supposed to make a tapered pin down the middle of it to to, you know, when you're casting it. You have right. to cure it for three days at about a 180 degrees, which is pretty hairy. Mm -hmm. So I pulled one out. It was probably still a little bit warm and I didn't have a tapered pin because uh, I didn't, I just said, oh, I can just use a right straight pin to save time. So I was tapping the pin out and uh, it blew up, you know, blew all my clothes off, blew me in the air about 10 or 12 feet, blew all my fingers off. I almost killed me. A lot of internal injuries. Wow. But, well, uh, I I'm sorry to hear out. that, but I'm glad you're alive. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, you know, that's a safety is a big issue, though, when you're doing this kind of stuff. That's, you know, that's I mean, we always make fun of the Burning Man people because they're they don't have the same protocols as we do. And people get hurt uh, frequently, you know, yeah. and the, like that place that burned down was sort of like the real indicator of the attitude that people have is that you can kind of do whatever you want. Uh, but then when 30 or 40 people get killed, it's, you know, yeah, that that's very serious. Shifting gears a little bit. Um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how, how do you think about the balance or relationship between technology and art in what you're creating? Well, you know, uh, you know, I'm of a mind of the surrealist. I forget, uh, I forget which one it was. I think it was Antonin Artaud where he, yeah, I think his quote was that when I hear, uh, when I hear the word art, I pull out my revolver. You know, he <laughs> said it somewhere. I, I forget who said it. it was one of the surrealists, I think. But, uh, you know, like my, I'm always very suspicious of the creative uh, process hmm. because I think it generates a lot of, well, these days, false positives. You know, I think, I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that you see in the art world is just basically people who spend too much time thinking about what is creative and don't really, you know, I think, I think that technology is good because it provides a buffer that slows down your mind because you're, you know, you get these great ideas and you think, Oh, I have what a great idea. You know, I could do blah, 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 blah. And then you realize, Oh shit. If you really have a hands-on experience with it, you go, oh shit, that's going to take me a couple of years to actually do that. Yeah. And I might not be able to even do it at all. And so I think that's a sobering, uh, it, you know, it, it, it puts a sobering edge onto the impulses, the creative impulse. And to me, it's it's been good because if I just could instantly do all the things I wanted to do, you know, probably that any area I live would become like a nuclear apocalypse or something, you know, <laughs> I mean, it would, you know, that's uh, just with, you know, with my attitude and uh, risk taking, you know, probably wouldn't be a good idea having to have it tied down to like uh, really having to know how to do it, you know, plus what fun would it be if you could just, I mean, I, I don't know if you know much about artists in, uh, high tech, like the ones that really do very technological things. Mm -hmm. Like I'll give you an example, like Jordan Wolfson, you know him, right? I've, I've he heard of the porno. He does the porno dancing robots and stuff yes. like that. Yes. So anyway, so he, I know the guy, he paid a million dollars to make that robot. 
He's made wow. two or three for that guy. He's made, I think he's, he charged a million for the first one. And I think he charged two million for the other ones, but he sold them for 10 million. But that's the thing. It's like uh, the art world is all based around ever since Andy Warhol, where there was this idea that artists just kind of do a sketch and someone else does all the work. You know, it's a factory, right? You're, you're the CEO or, or the director and you toss off some ideas and then all your peons or your, your uh, what do they call them in the tech world? They call them the implementers, you know? Yeah. And there's always this heavy, heavy, in the tech world, there's always this conflict between the implementers and the idea people, you know? Right. Pencil pushers, right? The people who are the designers and the theoreticians and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, so yeah, that's, uh, uh, what was the question you were talking so about? So is that just sort of how you think about the interaction oh, yeah. between art yes. and technology and sort of what you're trying to so I, make? I, yeah. I, I think it's good, you know, I think to be a real artist, you have to be able to get the ideas and you have to be able, at least potentially to make it yourself. And you have to actually make a certain significant part of it you know and i think that's very rare in the art and technology world really most people just pay other people to do this stuff for them like i do know artists i do know artists who my wife works for leo villarreal who's the artist that did the bay lights project yes he was the executive producer that she works with him as the executive producer of his uh, public art projects mm -hmm. now he really he's like basically he's a guy's degree from yale and he's actually a real computer scientist. I actually did. I actually met him in 1990 because I did a lecture at Yale in the in the art department there. And he was there, you know, and he was talking, you know, he was an artist interested in technology, you know, and I think I, I don't remember if I went to his studio or not, but, you know, I, I met him back then. And uh, he's actually one of those few artists that I know that are doing tech art that actually really knows exactly what it is he's doing and exactly how to do it i mean he has a great team now with him but but uh but you know he came up from came came at it from a a point of view of a more you know as much of a scientist as an artist yeah actually who are the other you know artists at the intersection of you know technology and art that you particularly respect who, I mean, who, who else do you think I should talk to? And if you were going to put together an exhibit on this, you know, who would you want to include? Well, I mean, there's the people who are kind of connected to, I mean, Leo, I think would be one really good person mm -hmm. for that. I don't know if he's got, they are super busy. They have projects everywhere, all around the world, you know, but, uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll put you in contact with my wife and, and she That'd would be, be one to connect to that. But uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's just not that many people around. I mean, there's, it's just so daunting to, I used to know a lot more people like that mm -hmm. in the industrial arts world, you know, but, but really like Christian, you know, is one of the only people yeah. left doing it along with me. I mean, Cal Spelatich is still doing stuff, you know, he's doing stuff, uh, you know, he's less tech, you know, but uh, from a manufacturing standpoint, you know, but, uh, but, you know, he does some pretty crazy stuff with his electronics and software stuff. He gets some good people to work with him on that stuff. He's smart to, to he knows who to get to work with him to make stuff happen, you know, in that regime. But, uh, you know, they're just, 
there just aren't very many around. I mean, I don't know that much about the art world. That's the thing is I don't run in those circles. I mean, I really pretty much just know scientists and stuff and research type people. Uh, you know, I don't really know that many artists. I mean, where, you know, so maybe you can't answer this question, but where do you feel like the, the robotic or industrial arts movement is right now? Sort of, you know, I was looking around for who might be considered the heirs of SRL, although you're still going strong. And it, it really wasn't clear to me. Well, I think that, uh, I mean, I look to people like Mark Raybert over at Boston Dynamics, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, come on, did you see the, the last one? The, the dancing robots? I, okay, I, so I the actually, dancing robots. So yeah. I posted I posted on the YouTube channel. I said, what did I say? I said, uh, I said something weird. But uh, I basically said, you know, all that, all those millions of dollars and you can't even have these robots dancing to gay 70s disco tunes. Because we listened <laughs> to, we listened for decades now, we listened to gay, like late 70s. That's the only music we listened to at SRL, late 70s like poppers sniffing, uh, coke snorting, gay <laughs> disco music. That's all we listen to here for decades now. And like, I love it, you know, I mean, to me, that's like, it's the, the weird, you know, it's the weirdest music out there. And it's like, it's a time of completely unrestrained wildness, you know, sexual wildness. But yeah, and so there's a couple stations and they, they started, there were internet stations originally, and they started off with like groups of DJs that worked at Studio 54. And, you know, now there's Diva Disco Radio that's out of, uh, I think, Texas, Austin. But that's all we listened to. I said, you know, I said, you know, get whacked. You know, we, I said, you should you should upgrade your Internet radio to Diva Disco Radio. And I said, get what you know, whacking is right. Uh, I mean, I, it sounds to me like masturbation, but no, I could be. No, whacking is W-A-K-K-I-N-G. It's a, it's a type of dancing that's like popular in gay uh, okay. club scenes in New York City. It was originally developed by a guy on Soul Train, one of the Soul Train dancers back in the 70s. It's a type of really wild dancing, but look it up. There was just a, you know, I've known about it since the, for a long time, right? Because of the disco connection. But it's that kind of really crazy disco dancing that people on Soul Train used to do. And so there's a modern variant of that. And then they just started calling it whacking. So huh. it's a little enough. Have to... thing, but, but anyway, so I, I posted that on there and I posted it on the, the SRL Facebook page. I took a, a screen grab from it, you know. But I mean, that's the thing is like, I've been trying to get, I know Mark Raber, you know, I've been to his lab. I went to his lab when he had just the leg lab at, uh, what MIT, right? Yeah, I think it was MIT. I think it was right. MIT. Yeah, and I because I visit used to visit MIT. I did a lecture there, a couple lectures there in the '90s, and I went to I went there a few times, and I went to a lot of people who work with SRL or MIT grads. We have a lot of MIT yeah. weirdos here, who are like just beyond beyond. You know, they have they work at they have their lab at Google X, and right. they're just you know really. Do you think a lot of people who maybe level, would uh, have been artists before going into industry now? Or no, is it they just, like that? they still work with SRL, but I mean, they just, uh, they're just really good at what they do. Right. And so uh, and they're in, they, they appreciate the arts, which was always a part of art and tech, a part of the art scene out here was like, 
I, I realized it back in the 70s when you'd go to these wild punk parties and like you, I remember I asked some guy what he did and I goes, well, what do you, what do you do? He looked totally like square at mm-hmm. this crazy party in the cast. I said, what do you do here? And he goes, oh, I work at Lockheed. And I was like, what? I said, and I had this long conversation with him. He goes, oh yeah, like, you know, there's all, we all love this whole punk scene, you know? And, and so there was always this intermingling between the art scene and the tech scene because you could do it out here and you wouldn't get fired for it on the East right. coast. You know, it's very, was always very regimented and very strict. And I think it still is pretty much, but you know, all these startups, the whole Silicon Valley is based on uh, people who are technical people, engineers looking at themselves and trying to squeeze that last little bit of creativity that is going to make, a new something new happened something radical happened something different happened you know yeah. or combining it i think google's more about combining they're more about they're they always seem to be me more interested in people who could they want people who can read a scientific paper and understand what it means mm-hmm. and who can read a manual that's what they want that's my conclusion and do you mean that in the sense that they're fundamentally not creative or no, I just they mean it combi- in the sense that 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 creativity uh in a practical sense is about taking a look at what's been done really understanding it and making it into the next yeah. thing I mean what do you think about the the maker movement that has sort of tr- tried to take some of the types of things you're doing but make it much more accessible you know, now you have people combining, you know, Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and 3D printers that are much more affordable to do creative things. You know, how do you feel about sort of what what's become of that? And, you know, do you interact with that or are you sort of doing your own thing separately from all of that? Well, I mean, I think it's great. I mean, I would always much rather see people making stuff. I mean, it's great that people know how to do things, you know, uh, the only problem with the the only problem with learning your skills uh, in uh, a kind of a maker matrix mm-hmm. of experience is that uh, it's very different than learning your skills working at a factory or working at a big research laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you don't really learn necessarily the right way to do stuff. You know, you don't learn the right way to, for instance, uh, weld something together. We call it art welding here or Burning Man (laughs) welding, you know, it's like, literally, of all the hundreds of people who have been in here, there's only been three people that actually really know how to weld in the, the, so where they could pass a test, me and like two other people. So, so, you know, there's like, there's, there's things like that, where the problem with the maker fair maker movement is it sort of is a dumbed down version of what you need to do, it's okay if you're making these small projects or fairly simple projects, but if you're getting into something more advanced that uses a higher, has a higher energy density, yeah. you can't, uh, you you run out of steam, I think in a way. Yeah, and that's my observation, just sort of as, as an amateur maker myself, you can make really small robots pretty easily that roll around on the floor. But if you want to make something that's more human size or bigger than that, that's a whole different skill set. Well, making um, something human, making something bigger isn't really the problem, but making it 
making it so it moves fast enough to be interesting or amazing is the trick. I mean, that's yeah. what Boston Dynamics does. That's pretty. That really makes them makes it an art. You know, is they actually understand that presentation value it means something. You know, right. And and uh, most tech companies they're making things they don't really they don't really care about that or they don't really understand it or I mean you look at the guy I mean not to really put down anybody but the Megabots project. Yeah. You know they spent all this money but like the thing couldn't move fast enough. They didn't really, I mean, there's lots of ways you could mask it. You could have made that thing. So it moved, it, it, it appeared to be just as agile as the Boston Dynamics robot, but you know, you have to do a few things differently. You can't be using like 2000 PSI hydraulics, you know, you've got to use like 8,000 PSI hydraulics and you've got to use parts from like recent, fighter jets you know you've got to use yeah. you know hydraulic thin thin diameter high flow high high pressure hydraulics and you can get something to move really fast you know if you do stuff like that or like you know there's there's ways to do it but i was always a little disappointed that they didn't do it and uh you know i mean we have all kinds of machines here that are you know like even something like the running machine which is a fairly crude machine it's all hydrostatically powered it uses servo hydraulic servo valves mm -hmm. but it moves pretty fast i mean it's a, for a walking machine it's fast it's four or five miles an hour you know which is you know and you've got all these people that make the theo jensen walking machines mm -hmm. but they are like it's like watching paint dry you know and and that you know watching paint dry should be relegated to the period of time when you're making the robot because right. that's the that's the part that takes forever. Not when it's out there running. When it's out there running, it's got to have something about it that makes people, that that pulls people into it. You know Absolutely. that that is uh, engaging, and yeah. so that has always been the struggle here. Because we're you know, but that's because at SRL we're trying to do basically you know the the proof of the project is in the presentation. You know. Yeah, actually, that gets to sort of, I mean, just a, a couple final questions, one significant and, and one just for my own personal interest. What do you think is the the value, the social value of what you're doing? Or, or what are you kind of trying to accomplish beyond making things that bring you joy? Or maybe that is the, the project. Um, but is there a social value that you see or how does it go out into the world? Well, people tell me that there's a social value. But I mean, it's pretty kind of impossible to be the judge of it. I mean, like I said, you know, if I had a lot more time to just sit around and think about what I was doing and kind of philosophize about it, I would probably have understood it by now. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not really into cracking those really tough nuts. And so to me, it's, uh, I, I mean, SRL is an emblematic, uh, we operate on an emblematic platform. In other words, what we're trying to do is show that something is possible. We're not trying to mm -hmm. uh, implicit, you know, we're, any, any messages that are there are implied messages. And a lot of it is implied by what it actually is that we're doing. I mean, but, you know, to me, the idea that, uh, to me, the idea, you know, the way, the best way, to, personally, the best way to counteract the idea that technology is overwhelming us and uh, ruining our lives 
is to fucking take back the night, you know, like mm -hmm. take technology and like twist it and bend it around to do something we want it to do, something interesting, something that's not about making money, something that's not about killing as many people as you can in the shortest period of time. And something that's not about just, you know, I mean, that's closer to what like, uh, you know, like maybe even, even in a contemporary sense, something like Elon Musk, right? Like that guy, he's like, he's like, I want to release as much energy in the shortest period of time as I can. You know, that's what he's thinking, right? I mean, yeah. there's a purity to that that is makes it much closer to art than, uh, than uh, you know, and it's all about the event. It's not really about like, it's like, it's like what we can learn by doing this, you know, it's, an, it's always experimental, you know. It's never really about some finished product in a way, you know. And he's got his day job, you know, Tesla and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I mean, that's, uh, and he's a billionaire, but we don't have, you don't have to be a billionaire to understand like why that's an important uh, emblem of the contemporary world, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I try to live my life in a way and I try to create, uh, you know, an image that SRL projects that's very consistently uh, satirical, sarcastic, disrespectful of technology, uh, but respectful at the same same time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, multi-layered. I mean, you know, I mean, it's for me, it's it's satisfying. It's it's fun for all the people that work here. But it, you know, you could put on a great show with it. I think. And, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's because it's unstructured, because these shows are unstructured, I think the people that go to see them, that go, come away and they go, that was just amazing. And everyone tells a different story about what they saw. Nobody sees the same thing. I mean, in some ways you can't physically see the same thing because of the way that the shows are staged. We stage them intentionally so that the action moves around in a way that no single person is ever going to see what's going on all completely. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, everyone's got a different interpretation of it. Everyone, but, but the, the point is, is if you can create an experience that's extreme enough where people will, uh, if where people will feel like it's worth looking at and thinking about and coming to some conclusion about you've succeeded in a way that's, you know, to my mind, is more effective than if you just were telling like some kind of, you know, story with political slogans or mm -hmm. this or that. I mean, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, uh, of that kind of thing. I, I think that uh, that's the, that's the, that's why there's a long-term appeal among a very narrow. I always say we're very widely unknown, but. Uh, <laughs> But there's always, uh, you know, there's a, there's an appeal that lasts a long time. I mean, we have some of the same, a lot of the same people that work with us now have been working with me since the early 80s. Wow. The same crew of probably like 70 or 80 people, you know, who just, will, and anytime there's something, I mean, now we're having these stupid Zoom meetings and it's, you know, brutal, man. I, I miss about what we're doing and trying to get stuff to work off-site and uh yeah you know but uh 
but you know, at heart, it's a community effort. Uh, well, that, that's a good closing. I do have one more sort of uh, question out of personal interest. So I'm a, a have been a huge fan of, of Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros and Psycom. And it looked like Perry Farrell used to work for you. Is that a correct? No, or... Perry, Perry Farrell was at, I think he was, he might've done something at the LA show, but he was part of the LA scene. I mean, we, we went out to Desolation Center. There was that movie. I don't know if you saw the movie Desolation Center. We went out and did a performance along with Einstein and Neubotten out in the desert in the 80s. It wasn't really a performance. We just brought, we just brought like a whole freaking truckload of bombs and a 10 barrel <laughs> shotgun and set up all this junk all over the place and blew it up and blew up part of the mountain and set fire to a tree and, you know, shot a bunch of stuff with a 10, 10 barrel shotgun in the desert, you know, and Einstein and Oibotten did their performance. And, but anyway, so Perry Farrell was at that show. Okay. But he wasn't I don't like personally an know him. I think maybe may, I might have met him someplace. You know, I know that uh, the Nine Inch Nails guy wanted to always wanted to do a show with us. Trent Reznor, yeah, Trent, yeah, and so he he had us meet his his manager had us meet with like Bill Graham presents, and he kept forcing them to have these meetings with us. You know, and finally the guy from Bill Graham just goes, "This was in the two thousand or late nineties. Finally, the guy from Bill Graham goes, "Look, man." He goes, we can make just as much money doing a show with like fucking somebody else. And we don't, it doesn't cost us any political capital. And so we're just not going to do this show with you because like, <laughs> it's going to cost us maybe not money, but it's going to cost us in favors from the fire and the police department yeah. and, and the city government. And we're not going to do it. Okay. Yeah. And so that was the end of that. But, uh, I don't know. Well, Mark Pauline, thank you so much for being uh, on uh, Art Robot Death, and uh, I, I look forward to seeing your your future work. Thank you. We'll keep doing it. Yeah. One last question, and this is not going to be okay. in the podcast, but you mentioned you are working on a robot that tracks down and kills people. Yeah, it's right what over the here. What the fuck is? I mean, is it uh, is it actually designed? What it is? It, what it is? It's yeah. an it's an arm that is all built with, you know, the five axis CNC machine, basically. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it's got a, it's got a high pressure gas cylinder that, that runs at 800 PSI. Mm -hmm. And it's a folded up arm that kind of looks like it fell off of, it looks like it fell off an alien ship. It's a, you have a and picture so what of it, it on is, your website, I think. Yeah. It's wrapped it's around built, you. It's built like a, it's built like an aircraft landing gear kind of, it's very robustly, constructed and it has a whole slew of shock absorbing technologies in it so essentially the it's about 40 or 50 pounds with a big claw on the end of it so it fires out the cylinder uh you know will fire it out we've we've calculated it'll it'll accelerate to about 90 miles an hour it weighs about 40 pounds and then it's going to hit a uh it hits a half inch uh lexan barrier that's on you know three sides in front of it mm. So, so what it does, it's got this camera that looks at the people. So if you walk up to it and it's powered on, it's got a camera that looks at the people in front of it and it starts doing engagement moves. Like it starts moving around and moving in and out and kind of doing, you know, like the, the hand is moving and moving in and out towards you. And, 
And then at the, that whole time, this period of time, it's watching what people do in response to the moves it's making. And when it sees that someone's particularly agitated or active or talking about it a lot, then that person on the screen behind it, that person, we've got it now, so they, they change color. So then you're, then you're the target. And then once you're the target, it starts to track you. It retracts and it loads the high pressure gas cylinder and it starts following you around. And it waits until you turn away from it or it waits until you, uh, your eyes are blinked and then it fires out at a 90 miles an hour. And it can hit anywhere from your face down to your crotch. So you, won't, you can't even see it firing. Basically, it's like a bomb going off in front of you because it's like... But know, it won't reach you because there's a barrier no, between you No, it can't you reach you because there's half-inch bulletproof plastic in front of you. But the, just still, it's a lot of energy. I mean, I don't know, 50 pounds times 90 miles an hour. It's about... Somebody calculated it's close to the energy of a... Of a uh, uh, it's, it's about 5,000 joules, 6,000 joules wow. of energy. A, tw- a 50 caliber bullet is a 20,000 joules. 50 caliber machine gun bullet yeah. is 20,000 joules of energy. So this would be about 5,000. So, you- so that's, that's what it does. Basically it just, it just, it's, and it's, uh, David's going to do some, uh, teach, it's learning. It'll have some learning modules. Do, do you know sort of what will jump the furthest? Uh, fascinating. Do you know what sort of are you using like a, a Raspberry Pi or a Coral Development Board or? No, we're using we're using a, a Nook. We're using like a late. Oh model yeah, Nook I know Nook. Has yeah. a very one of the ones that has a a lot of graphics uh, memory. I forget which one it is. This one, it's about a year and a half old, and it's got a bunch of it's got a big GPU in it. So that's the GPU is is doing all of the processing, and so we're using we're using Emerson uh, AC brushless servo motors with encoders on them to uh, and brakes on them to uh, heavily geared down. So it's got stiffness is sort of like an industrial robot arm. Yeah, I mean we're doing our reduction ratios aren't quite that much. It's more like uh, uh, fifty to one or something. And you're using a, a real sense uh, as the your real sort of sense vision. Three D camera is scanning and making a three D uh, right, m- making a three D view of of the the people in right. front of it. And yeah, and, and they it, know how to do skeleton tracking and various. Yeah, things. and so he's taking all the telemetry that comes off of it, and then using that to drive the. It's basically using the Nook to drive yeah. the using this software he wrote that then the Nook just tells the Emerson. Uh, uh, servo amps, what to do. <clears throat> and then there's like, a, we're using a lab jack for all of the PLC IO stuff. So what that's doing is that's running, uh, that's running this cascade of pneumatic valves that opens and closes the valves that, uh, because the, the high pressure cylinder is like a 800 PSI poppet valve cylinder that has a, a big, like a seven inch poppet valve that flies back and exposes the uh, full diameter of the cylinder to 800 PSI. So there's no, uh, so it's similar to what a powder fired weapon would be like a, like a, a shotgun or a mortar, maybe more, yeah. more like that. It actually is a design that I have on the air launcher. 
uh, it was a NASA design for creating a, a gas a gas launcher that would perform the same way as a, a recoilless rifle. Hmm. And so basically I modified that design and I built the air launcher from that back in the 90s. And so That's now right. I'm taking that and making a closed cylinder with it. This is all much more interesting than I, I, I thought it might be. Would it be okay? So I, I told you I wasn't going to put this on the show. Would it be okay for me to do so? Or would you prefer this description of it, which is pretty awesome? No, to... it's fine. I could okay. send you a couple, I could send you a couple pictures of the, of the predator arm. I mean, there's a bunch of the bet. You can see a bunch of stuff and some videos of it on yeah. Instagram. Of us. Oh, I'll, I'll check that out. Uh, my Instagram is Mark Pauline five. Thanks to Mark Pauline for joining us here on Art Robot Death. Once again, I'm your host, Timothy Reuter. And thanks to all of you for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe. Also, we're always looking for new ideas for people to interview. So please leave your thoughts down in the comments along with any other feedback that you may have. Have a good day. Goodbye.